Good evening. The second day of the trial of Derek Chauvin. A witness says the cop had a heartless look as he pressed his knee to George Floyd's neck. And a vaccine passport. Is it in the cards? And another woman accuses Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. For the first time, the Biden administration today allowed journalists inside its main border detention facility for migrant children, revealing a severely overcrowded tent structure where more than 4,000 people, including children and families, were crammed into a space intended for 250, and the youngest were kept in a large playpen with mats on the floor for sleeping. With thousands of children and families arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border in recent weeks and packing facilities, President Joe Biden has been under pressure to bring more transparency to the process. U.S. Customs and Border Protection allowed two journalists from the Associated Press and a crew from CBS to tour the facility in Donna, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, the nation's busiest corridor for illegal crossings. More than 4,100 people were being housed on the property Tuesday. Most were unaccompanied children. Children processed in tents before being taken to the facilities run by the Department of Health and Human Services and then placed with family members, relatives or sponsors. The children were being housed by the hundreds in eight pods formed by plastic dividers, each about 3,200 square feet in size. Many of the pods had more than 500 children in them. More than 4,100 people were being housed on the property. To, uh, pardon me. The children were I'm sorry about that. We already read that. And that's we're going to move on to the next story. Protesters were in the street. We'll be following. By the way, we'll be following that story this week as it develops. Protesters were in the street as the trial of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin entered its second day. Last night, hundreds of protesters took to the streets to demand justice for the killing of George Floyd. Constitution to make us be slaves, they said we were three-fifths of a human being. So basically that's what was happening in the court. That's what the defense was trying to say today about George Floyd, that he wasn't a human being, and that it's okay to put your knee on an animal's neck for close to for nine minutes and twenty-nine seconds. We know that we're humans. They know that we're humans, but they'll pretend they'll deny us our humanity so it's easy to kill us. I don't want your charity. I don't want your sympathy. I don't want you to just care. I want you to demand to fix the justice system in this country. There's a clear difference at this moment when we are demanding justice inside that courthouse. We are also demanding justice outside the courthouse. Today's first witness was Donald Williams, whose voice can be heard calling on cops to allow Floyd to get off the pavement on videos of the encounter as Chauvin was pitting Floyd by the neck under the officer's knee. The prosecution is apparently arguing the growing number of citizens who stopped the video as Floyd was being choked was perceived as a threat by the officers. Williams was asked if he was becoming angry, but he answered no. He was becoming concerned because, in part, Floyd could have been him. I just was really trying to keep my professionalismness and make sure that I speak out for Floyd's um, life 
because I felt like he was in very much danger. And I seen another man like me, you know, being controlled in a way where. Yeah, let me let me just. This is. Yeah. Stop. Just a question. We'll sure. Ask another question. And um, were you scared for yourself? Uh, yes, I was totally scared for my safety and uh, people around me. As Williams described what amounted to George Floyd's last breaths. You could see that he was going through um, tremendous pain. And you could see it in his face from the grunting. Uh, you could see his eyes slowly, you know, rolling back um, in his, his head and him having his mouth open, um, wide open, slowly with drool and slob and dryness on his mouth. Um, and uh, you can see that he's trying to, you know, gas for air, you know, and trying to um, be able to breathe uh, as he's down there and trying to move his face, you know, side to side so he can, you know, I'm, I'm believing, okay. I'm assuming gas for more air there. Witness Donald Williams. Witness after witness described how Chauvin was unmoved by their pleas with the teenager who shot the harrowing video of the arrest that set off nationwide protests, testifying that the officer gave the crowd a cold and heartless stare. 18-year-old witness Elisa Nicole Funari was heading to the store to buy a charging cable for her phone when she came across the scene. The video she shot documented most of the incident. She says her first thought was to get out of there, but then she decided the incident had to be recorded. Her testimony begins with a clip from her video. Bro, he ain't crying, bro. You, you circle, like, in a jiu-jitsu move, bro? You tra you trapping his breathing right there, bro. Like, you don't think that what it is, bro? You don't think nobody understands that shit right there, bro? I train at the academy, bro. That's some bullshit, bro. Right, that's bullshit, bro. That's bullshit, bro. You, you fucking stopping his breathing right there, bro. Okay, he's talking. He's talking, bro, but you could get him off the ground. You've been a bum right now. You could get him off the ground, bro. He enjoying that. He enjoying that shit. He enjoying that shit. He a fucking bum, bro. Is he talking now? You enjoying it. Look at you. Your body language is flames. Look at him. Bro, get the fuck off of him. What? No, I already know that, bro. He's looking. He's about to knock out. What the fuck is wrong? All right, we can pause there for a minute. Um, well, at that point, I saw him, like, moving towards him more, putting more pressure. And when you say him moving towards him, can you just, just it was Derek. So Derek, Mr. Chauvin, was moving towards Mr. Floyd more? Yes, with his knee. Okay. So when you say kneeing him more, are you meaning applying, pushing on him more with that knee? Yes. Okay notice a change in Mr. Floyd at that point in time? Uh, yes, he stopped being as vocal and he was more struggling to breathe. Well, look, well, you should check on him. He's not... No! He's not responsive right now, bro. Does he have a pulse? No, bro, look at him. He's not responsive right now, bro. Bro, are you serious? Go check. Let me see a pulse. 
Is he breathing he's right now? Check his pulse. He's not moving. Okay, bro, okay. you're a bum, bro. Okay. You're a bum, bro. You're Check definitely his pulse right a bum, now. bro. Tell me what it is. Bro, he has not moved, not one time. In over a minute. So, um, is it your voice um, asking about badge number and saying he's not moving, things like that? Yes. Um, and then someone said he hasn't moved, and then I, and then in over a minute, was that your voice too? Yes. Were you worried about the length of time that this was going on? Yes, because I knew time was running out or that it had already. What do you mean by time was running out? That he was going to die? Witness Elisa Nicole Finari. Chauvin is charged with murder and manslaughter, accused of killing Floyd by pinning the 46-year-old handcuffed black man to the pavement for what prosecutors said was nine minutes and 29 seconds. Floyd was arrested after being accused of trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill at a convenience store. The most serious charge against a now-fired white officer carries up to 40 years in prison. The defense has argued that Chauvin did what his training told him to do and that Floyd's death was not caused by the officer but by a combination of illegal drug use, heart disease, high blood pressure, and adrenaline throwing through his body, a uh, position that is strongly opposed by prosecutors in most of the community in Minneapolis. More than 20 heads of government and global agencies, meanwhile, in a uh, commentary published Tuesday for an international treaty for pandemic preparedness that they say will protect future generations in the wake of COVID-19. European Council President Charles Michel first laid out the idea of a pandemic treaty at the United Nations General Assembly in December. Joining the World Health Organization at Tuesday's briefing, Michelle said the global community needs to build a pandemic defense for future generations that extends far beyond today's crisis. Twenty-five nations have signed on to a preliminary agreement towards a treaty. There was no indication any country would soon change its own approach to responding to the pandemic. China, Russia, and the United States didn't join in signing the statement. Meanwhile, a joint World Health Organization-China study on the origins of COVID-19 says that transmission of the virus from bats to humans through another animal is the most likely scenario and that a lab leak is extremely unlikely. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top U.S. infectious disease expert, said he would like to see the report's raw information first before deciding about its credibility. And White House press spokesperson Jen Psaki says President Biden agrees there needs to be more transparency on the sources of data used in the report lacks crucial data, information, and access. It represents a partial and incomplete picture. We don't believe that in our review to date that it meets the moment, it meets the impact that this pandemic has had on the global community. And that's why we also have called for additional forward-looking steps. I can certainly confirm for you that he shares these concerns. They, they are coming directly from him and directly from our national security team who has looked at what the report has presented to date. They're still reviewing and share the concerns issued in that statement. And that's Jen Psaki. In related news, right-wing representative and QAnon enthusiast Marjorie Taylor Greene is challenging the potential launch of a vaccine passport program. It would allow Americans to prove they've gotten a coronavirus shot before entering venues closed during the pandemic. The Georgia Republican tweeted they might as well call it Biden's mark of the beast, a phrase from a passage in the Bible often considered a reference to Satan or the Antichrist. As a theory going around QAnon and conspiracy theories means 
meaning receiving a COVID-19 vaccine is equivalent to pledging allegiance to the devil. Biden signed an executive order shortly after entering office in January that directs agencies to assess the feasibility of linking coronavirus shots to vaccine cards. Yesterday, White House Press Secretary Saki said Biden was leaving the details of a passport to the private sector or development of a vaccine passport or whatever you want to call it uh, will be driven by the private sector. Ours will more be focused on guidelines that can be used as a basis. And uh, there are a couple key principles that we are working from. One is that there will be no centralized universal federal vaccinations database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. Second, we want to encourage an open marketplace with a variety of private sector companies and nonprofit coalitions developing solutions. And third, we want to drive the market toward meeting public interest goals. So we'll leverage our resources uh, to ensure that all vaccination credential systems meet key standards, whether that's universal accessibility, affordability, availability, both digitally and on paper. Uh, But those are our standards. It's currently going through an interagency process. We'll make some recommendations and then uh, we believe it will be driven by the private sector. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis chimed into the debate yesterday. He said it's completely unacceptable, adding an executive order was coming soon in his state against vaccination passports. What these vaccine passports is, uh, it's completely unacceptable for either the government or the private sector to impose upon you uh, the requirement that you show proof of vaccine to just simply be able to participate in normal society. You want to go to a movie theater? Should you have to show that? No. You want to go to a game? No. You want to go to a theme park? No. So we're not supportive of that. Um, I think it's something that people have certain freedoms and individual liberties to make decisions for themselves. I also wonder, it's like, okay, you're going to do this, and then what, give all this information to some big corporation? You want the fox to guard the hen house? I mean, give me a break. I think this is something that has huge privacy implications. It is not necessary to do. You know, we're going to have hit three and a half million seniors that have gotten shots uh, uh, sometime this week, likely 75% of seniors. It's important to be able to do it. But at the same time, uh, we are not going to have you provide proof of this just to be able to live your life normally. And I'm going to be taking some action and an executive function, emergency function here very shortly. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The idea of a vaccine passport is gaining traction in other countries. In Israel, vaccinated people or those who have already been infected by COVID-19 can get a green pass from the health ministry, an app that allows them access to gyms, theaters and clubs. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A vicious attack on an Asian-American woman as she walked to church near near New York City's Times Square is drawing widespread condemnation and raising alarms about the failure of bystanders to intervene amid a rash of anti-Asian violence across the United States. A lone assailant was seen on surveillance video late Monday morning, kicking the 65-year-old woman in the stomach, knocking her to the ground and stomping on her face. All as police say, he shouted anti-Asian slurs and told her, You don't belong here. The attack happened outside an apartment building two blocks from Times Square, a bustling, heavily policed section of midtown Manhattan, known to all of us as the crossroads of the world. Two workers inside the building who appeared to be security guards were seen on the video witnessing the attack but failing to come to the woman's aid. Their union said they called for help immediately. 
The attacker was able to casually walk away while onlookers watched, according to the video. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio called the video of the attack absolutely disgusting and outrageous and said it was absolutely unacceptable that witnesses did not intervene. And Sherry Ville, a 55-year-old married mother of three, described in detail Monday how Governor Andrew Cuomo grabbed her face, manhandled her, and forcibly kissed her while touring her flood-damaged home in 2017, saying he did so in a highly sexual manner. Ville, whose house was among those damaged, invited Cuomo into her home and expressed dismay at its condition. She described the encounter with famed feminist attorney Gloria Allgood, Bill says she felt like she was being manhandled by the governor. Governor Cuomo went into my house with my husband's son, along with his staff and some town officials. I came in shortly afterward, and when I walked in, I said to the governor, do you think that we have to live like this? That's when the governor looked at me, approached me, took my hand, and pulled me to him. He leaned down over me and kissed my cheek. I was holding my small dog in my arms, and I thought he was going to pet my dog, but instead he wedged his face between the dog and mine and kissed me on the other cheek. And what I felt was highly sexual manner. I wasn't expecting that at all. He said, that's what Italians do, kiss both cheeks. I felt shocked and didn't understand what had just happened, but I knew I felt embarrassed and weird about his kissing me. I am Italian and in my family, family members kiss. Strangers do not kiss, especially upon meeting someone for the first time. The governor's staff started to walk out of the house. Governor Cuomo lagged behind them. He stopped, he turned to me and said, you are beautiful. That made me feel even more uncomfortable. I felt as though he was coming on to me in my own home. The governor and his staff proceeded to view the damages outside of the house. I purposely did not follow because I felt uncomfortable given what had just happened in my living room. I walked out the front door and stayed in the front of the house away from them. After seeing the damages, the governor then circled to the front of the house where I was standing. He then approached me. He took my hand and said, is there anything else you want? I didn't know how to respond. He then leaned down on top of me and while still holding one of my hands, he forcibly grabbed my face with his other big hand and kissed my cheek. Again, in a very aggressive manner. I felt like I was being manhandled, especially because he was holding my face and he was kissing my cheek again. I could not use my other hand to stop him because he did it so quickly. And I also was holding my dog with my other hand. The way he looked at me and his body language made me very uncomfortable. I felt he was acting in a highly flirtatious and inappropriate manner, especially in front of my family and neighbors. He is almost six feet tall. I'm approximately five feet tall. He towered over me. There was nothing I could do. When the governor left, I thought the craziness was over. However, to my surprise, within days, I received a call on my voicemail from the governor's staff. 
The woman on the other end said Governor Cuomo was having an event in town naming the place and the time and asked if I'd like to attend. Notably, she did not say my husband and I or my family and I, only specifically me. I purposely did not respond to the invitation. I felt very uneasy about the call. I was the one, only one that received the call and the personal invite from the governor. Then to top it off, the governor sent me a letter and pictures. The pictures were featured, the governor and me. And the letter was addressed only to me. More alarms going off. The whole thing was so strange and inappropriate and still makes me nervous and afraid because of his power and position. Accuser Sherry Vill, Cuomo's lawyer, Rita Glavin, issued a statement reiterating a defense Cuomo has previously invoked, arguing that he often kisses and embraces both men and women as what's meant to be a comforting gesture. Allred and Ville also chose to reserve judgment on whether Cuomo should resign as governor, saying that the investigations should first run their course. And closer to home, Mayor Bill de Blasio ran down the city's COVID-19 indicators at his daily press briefing. Daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 186 patients. That's a good number. Again, we'll keep keep watching that closely, but that's a good number today. Confirmed positivity, 54.64%. Hospitalization rate, 3.94 per 100,000. Number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 3,591 cases. Number three, percentage of people testing citywide positive for COVID-19. Today's report on a seven-day rolling average, 6.15 percent. Despite the large number of folks in New York getting the vaccination, a fourth wave of the deadly disease is rearing its head. Health Commissioner Dr. Jave Chokshi says the city is facing new variants of the disease, and there is a rise in cases. Reinfection is possible, but it appears to be relatively rare, uh, at least based on our understanding thus far. There are some of the variants, um, particularly the B1351 and P1 variants. Those are the ones first identified in South Africa and Brazil, respectively, that do appear to um, be able to evade our immune response uh, more so than some of the other variants of the virus. And so that's something that we are following closely. uh, And there appears to be evidence that uh, people who get those variants are more at risk of reinfection, even if they've had COVID-19 in the past. Health Commissioner Dr. Jave Choksi. New York City's plan to charge drivers for using the city's busiest streets will officially move forward following the release of long-awaited guidance from the federal government. On Tuesday, the Federal Highway Administration informed the Metropolitan Transit Authority, as well as the city and state transportation departments, that they'll need to complete an environmental assessment, the quicker of two possible review processes, in order to move forward with congestion pricing. Mayor de Blasio supports the measure and had this to say today. New York City is the economic engine for the state of New York. New York City is the economic engine for the metropolitan area. Uh, New York City is one of the economic engines for the United States of America. If you just look at the metropolitan area, uh, the, the GDP of the New York City metropolitan area rivals some of the biggest countries in the world. So all of that comes back to the subways and the buses that, that are the lifeblood. And when they're working well, everything else works. 
and it takes real resources to make sure that that will happen. So uh, I think of this one in the investment category, Steve. This is everyone uh, helping to ensure that this city works for everyone, not just in the five boroughs, but in the entire metropolitan area. And congestion pricing, you know, we've seen it work in other places in the world. I'm convinced this is the way forward. So we'll listen to everyone, but I don't have a doubt in my mind this is the way forward. And that's Mayor de Blasio earlier today. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.